Today on the Almond Journey podcast. There's these practices that, you know, we want to implement. And what I'm trying to figure out is where can I reduce the risk? Where can I reduce the amount of effort on our part and make it as practical on our farm and as efficient as possible? Compost, cover crops and more with almond grower Tanya Gemperly-Gonsalves. Welcome back to the Almond Journey podcast brought to you by the Almond Board of California. It's on this show that we discover how growers, handlers, and other stakeholders are making things work in their operations to drive the almond industry forward. I'm your host, Tim Hamrich, and I get to travel up and down the valley, virtually in this case, to feature the leaders who are finding innovative ways to improve their operations, connect with their local communities, and advance this almond industry. Today, we're going to travel down to the Turlock area to speak with Tanya Gemperly-Gonsalves of Gemperly Farms. Tanya has been working with her dad, Rich, and has taken a particular interest in finding ways to improve their almond operations in Stanislaus and Merced counties. In addition to growing about 2,000 acres of almonds, they also raise hens for eggs and have some other small plantings of orchard crops. But Tanya says she mostly focuses on the almonds. We actually recorded this conversation at the Almond Conference back in December, where Tana shared with me some of the ideas she's implemented related to planting cover crops, incorporating compost, uh, converting acreage to organic, whole orchard recycling, and more. So you're going to hear about not only what she's been trying, but also what's been working so far. We also talk about this buzzword of sustainability, since her title is sustainability manager, how she defines it, and what it looks like to try to make progress in this area without sacrificing productivity or profitability. Here's today's episode with Tanya Gemperly-Gonsalves. So I would say that we already had some benefits in that because we do eggs as well as almonds, we have an endless supply of chicken manure. And so there's a huge synergy between the two operations in that Pretty much 99.9% of our nutrition comes from the chicken manure, either in a dry manure or a composted manure form. So that was already happening before I came along. But then you can start to add in things like reduced tillage, cover cropping, a lot. (laughs) You know, starting to look at irrigation management and what little savings can happen there. But mainly I think what I've done is like try to look at the support that's out there for these practices and how can it be kind of as efficient and low risk as possible. So it's not like, you know, I'm trying to convince my dad, oh, we have to do this practice that, you know, he's reluctant to do. That's not at all what my role is. I think there's these practices that, you know, we want to implement. And what I'm trying to figure out is where can I reduce, you know, the risk? Where can I reduce the amount of effort on our part? And where can I find, you know, whether it's financial support, technical assistance support, and um, make it as practical on our farm and as efficient as possible. Sure. No, that's great. And I think this question... I don't know, maybe it's an easy question to answer. It'd be a hard question for me to answer. But like when somebody says, well, sustainability manager, like what do you mean by sustainability? You know, how, how do you define it? Because uh, I know what it means inherently, but I don't know that I could define it to like explain it to somebody who didn't understand it. 
Well, if you were just to ask me to define sustainability in general, it's meeting the needs of today without compromising the ability of us to like meet our needs in the future. When you're defining sustainability, a lot of times you're going to be looking at three different aspects, which is environmental sustainability, community or social sustainability, and then also economic sustainability. And that's, you know, very general. So if I'm thinking about sustainable agriculture or sustainable almonds, each of those aspects, you know, you can think more farm scale or more like operation scale of how am I using or impacting, you know, like my water resource, uh, my communities, is my operation economically sustainable to, you know, maybe pass down to generations and still be able to sustain, you know, the next generation's livelihoods, but also have uh, communities that aren't being negatively impacted. Yeah. No, that's great. You mentioned earlier support for practices, uh, kind of part of your job is out there kind of looking for what support for practices are out there. Have you taken advantage of any, you know, grants or programs that have helped you all implement something new on your, your farm? Yeah, uh, there's a lot. So, um, off the top of my head, I would say if you're looking for support for, like, let's say, cover cropping or hedgerows, those are pretty big right now. We've worked extensively with Project APIS-M and their Seeds for Bees program, so that's a great resource. You can get free seed from them for a few years, and then we've just continued to buy from them because we like their seed and, you know, we get free delivery. And... Pollinator Partnership has had some grants where they will help pay for hedgerows or Monarch Joint Venture can pay for some Monarch Habitat. We've received a Healthy Soils Program Incentive Grant, so that's through CDFA. And that was one of the ways that we figured out kind of reducing the risk to try to cover crop a larger block. Up until that point, we had cover cropped smaller orchards, trying to kind of figure out how cover cropping worked in our system. And we used that grant to kind of try a 500 acre block. So being much more aggressive with how much ground we were trying to cover crop. Well, let's, yeah, let's pause right there though on the cover crop. So you you tried it on a small acreage to figure out how it worked in your system. Like you said, what did you see you know, that made you encourage that it would work on a larger block and that you wanted to continue to do it because of the benefits you were seeing? Um, I think it was just kind of refining the process each year. So, you know, you kind of come up against making mistakes and then figure out how to fix the mistakes. And so once we were able to, you know, spread this, we spread the seed right after harvest. So we float, we spread the seed and we're kind of dragging a little bit of a homemade implement right behind the broadcast seeder. So there's only one pass for the seeding, and then we're flood irrigating after harvest anyways. So we're getting a a full coverage irrigation on the seed. And so we found that the cover crop seeding wasn't actually adding much to what we were already doing. You know, we were already going to float after harvest. So that kind of took care of the ground prep. We added one pass to plant the seed and we used a a broadcast seeder. And then we're kind of irrigating after harvest anyway, so it's not adding extra irrigation water. And 
yeah, so I think we kind of found a way to fit it into our system that it wasn't causing us to have to do multiple passes or add extra water, or a lot of extra labor or anything, and made it pretty streamlined and easy for us. Great. And so do you use cover crops uh, everywhere now or certain fields it works and certain it doesn't? Well, yeah, definitely certain orchards are more successful than others. And that's definitely a question as to, you know, why. And every year is different. But usually we make our cover cropping decisions like kind of based on what we're seeing in the orchard that year, what we want to address. So we might be thinking about certain areas that have water infiltration problems or maybe wanting to make sure we get bee forage out for pollinators in the spring. So every year we're just kind of trying to decide where do we want to see certain benefits that cover crops can provide and um, making decisions based on on an annual basis. Sure. No, that's cool. What's on the top of your mind for next season? You know, as we're as we're rolling into the new year here, uh, what's top of your mind or new things you want to try or things you want to improve? What are the priorities for you and your role? So I mentioned the new orchard that we recently planted. So we actually want to apply for a sweep grant to install solar on that orchard to power the irrigation on that orchard. So I think getting some solar installed up there is one of the next big projects. What about, um, how are you kind of tracking your progress in these areas? You know, uh, is there a system that you can use to sort of say like, hey, we're getting better in terms of sustainability and, you know, in XYZ quantifiable way? I mean, it just seems like there's very few sustainability managers for farming operations out there, at least that I know of. And so like, are you having to kind of figure this stuff out uh, from scratch? I feel like, yeah, a lot of, I think I look to kind of the research that's coming out But also, I think as different aspects of sustainability become more popular, there's new things developed. So off the top of my head, with the Healthy Soils program, they wanted to sequester carbon in soils. So CDFA now has Comet Planner, which is a modeling tool that you can use to figure out how much carbon you're sequestering on your orchard. So now, just outside of healthy soils, I have this kind of great way that I can communicate to people, this is how much carbon we're sequestering on our soils. And so, you know, the tool was developed specifically for the Healthy Soils program, but it's something I use a lot in just getting, you know, a solid idea, I think, of what you're getting to, of like finding some numbers of what these practices can like translate into into a metric, which in this case is carbon sequestered or emissions avoided. But You know, for each thing, you know, water, I think, is a lot easier. Nutrition, especially nitrogen, there's a lot of research on nitrogen leaching. But then there's other things that are a lot, at this point, less researched, and therefore you don't have the same sort of measuring capabilities that you do. Cool. Yeah. What do you enjoy most about your your work day to day? There's a lot that I enjoy. I enjoy kind of seeing some of these practices or ideas like come into fruition. So, you know, and you also have these like aha moments. So when I started, we didn't have any organic acreage and, you know, there's just kind of tricky barriers to kind of figure out and different 
things to think about, like how you're going to do organic weed management or what sort of other resources are out there for organic. And as we've converted acreage to organic, it's kind of really satisfying to see that either things, you know, work or certain aspects don't work and then you find ways around it. Also, I think like talking to researchers and I think it's great to kind of inform their research of like what the practices look like on the ground but then also like what are the holes where where do we need more information when you're trying to make these decisions and i'm sorry i maybe you said but i didn't pick up on it how how much of your ground is organic is it like half and half or is it a small percentage or no yeah so we're we currently have about a hundred acres that's certified organic but we've just started transitioning another 116 acres. That's the first kind of really large block that we've transitioned. And then we have other blocks that, you know, we've designed them with the idea of being able to start transitioning them. But it's not something that, you know, we want to like transition a ton of acreage and then realize we were too aggressive. It's definitely something we're, you know, kind of slow and steady with and also like it's easier. You can transition existing orchards, but as we've done it, we've realized, you know, as we replant an orchard, you can kind of design it with organic in mind and what you can kind of eliminate some difficulties that way. And so as these trees are getting older, because, you know, we're making the the personal choices not to start from day one organic. We like to start the trees with some herbicide control and stuff like that and then transition them after a little bit of time and that's mm. been easier for us to manage i bet yeah no that that's one i mean cool learning are there other cool learnings that you could share about organic production in terms of what you've learned works at least for you yeah there's definitely been a lot of learning i think weed management is one of the biggest barriers to organic almonds so, you know, it's kind of cool to see that the the industry might slowly be working towards off-ground harvesting because that will, I think, be pretty key in terms of having to manage less of the orchard floor for weeds. Do you have to do a lot of mowing? Yeah. So we currently manage weeds using mowing and we have, you know, a really wide mower. And then at the end of the mower, we also have like a reciprocating or oscillating head that can go into the tree row and then kind of move back when it hits a tree. We also use flaming to control weeds in the tree row. We're developing using steam to kill weeds in the tree row. And then I think also farming hard shell varieties can help eliminate a lot of your kind of or at least it makes the pest control a lot more forgiving. You know, you're not having your nuts be as susceptible to insect damage. And then also the last big thing is having a single harvest because when you have pollinator varieties that need to be harvested separately, you're having to prep the orchard floor potentially twice and then also like any nuts that are left after the first harvest. If you're prepping the ground with mowing, (laughs) those just get mowed up. So trying to if you have an orchard that you can just harvest in a single go it's much much simpler especially if you're harvesting on the ground yeah those are great tips 
That was great. Yeah. Um, what about uh, you guys? Have you guys tried any like whole orchard recycling? Yeah. Yeah, we've done quite a few orchards. So a lot of acreage. I think the first one we did was in maybe 2016. And we've had a lot of redevelopments over the years that have all included whole orchard recycling. Again, like the first year was <laughs> a lot of learning, a lot of failures of like trying to broadcast the chips ourselves and like just getting clogged and like being really, really a pain in the neck. But yeah, as as the technology is advanced, you know, the industry is going that way. So there's a lot more kind of yeah, people have like worked out these kinks. Have you? Yeah, yeah. like uh, the when you've done it recently, has it gotten better for you? Oh yeah, yeah. definitely. So now it's pretty streamlined. Um, I think we've done probably close to 500 acres now in total. That's been incorporated into the orchard prior to planting. Um, and yeah, I think at this point now it's pretty easy. You know, the companies that can do the chipping and spreading, you know, they're pretty good at it now. We're not trying necessarily to spread it ourselves anymore. We do incorporate it ourselves and we, you know, purchase some equipment just to turn the ground and get those chips deep enough. And we we do kind of supplement some nitrogen after the whole orchard incorporation. Uh, we have seen some nitrogen deficiencies and oh and then of course if this is something you're thinking about because the cost can be substantial so there's a lot of financial incentives now the air board has funding healthy soils program now includes whole orchard recycling as a practice that you can get payments for and um nrcs so there's definitely ways to get some of that price it might not cover the whole thing, but it'll make it a little <laughs> less expensive. Yeah. And then are you, uh, how long are you waiting before replanting when you do whole orchard recycling? So we plant in the same winter. Yeah. And that, it's a big project to take on in a winter, but we try to get the chipping and spreading incorporation done as early as possible. We do everything in-house. Well, besides the grinding and the spreading, we do everything in-house Oh, and, you know, if it's getting fumigated, we, we don't do that ourselves either. But <laughs> we do all the planting ourselves, and we've reduced costs a lot that way. And we've also just had a lot of practice because we've had a lot of orchards redeveloped recently. Well, um, you know, last question, just kind of looking forward here. If you could provide one message to the almond industry based on your work, your vantage point, you know, what, what would you like to say to kind of round out our episode? I would say that if there's like a practice that you're thinking about implementing on your farm, then, you know, just be aware that there's a lot of support out there for it. You don't have to try to like go it on your own. You know, you could get financial support or technical, like just advice support. And also like, you know, don't be discouraged. <laughs> like every year is going to be different, especially something like cover cropping. You know, we've had great stands and we've had kind of unsuccessful stands. And that doesn't mean that, you know, you did something wrong or it won't work again next year. And those seeds are, might still be in the ground, even if it didn't get enough rain that winter. So I would say, yeah, it's great to just practice or try things and learn. And there's benefit to be had, even if, you know, it might not be as successful as you hoped. <laughs> sure. 
agriculture in California can feel like, you know, we have a lot of difficulties, you know, water or like really heavy regulation compared to other places. But I think in California, we have this really unique opportunity to create agriculture that can, you know, be as sustainable as possible because we're being, you know, forced to work on that, right? We have with these limitations of, you know, resources or we have regulations coming in and telling us you've got to do this as well as you can. And so I think if you're going to have agriculture somewhere, you want to have it in this environment where we have the support in like, you know, the Almond Board and all of the research institutions and nonprofits and and even, you know, <laughs> a big part of my job is having to deal with the regulations and it, it's, it's really, it can be really frustrating, but also I think it's important to make sure we have agriculture in that sort of environment because it's going to bring out the best. <laughs> even though there's obviously things I think we can change and should, you know, I don't think we can regulate agriculture out of California, I think that would be a terrible thing. But I think there's a balance to be struck. And the support we have here is really, really great and really important. Well, I want to give a big thank you to Tanya Gemperly-Gonsalves for being on the show today. It's always great to hear from innovative growers who are trying new practices and sharing their firsthand accounts of how it's going. Thank you so much to Tanya for taking the time for this interview. And Tanya is one of many almond growers who have added flowering cover crops and monarch habitat around their ranches. This is especially important because the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service made the decision that it is warranted for the monarch butterfly to be listed as an endangered species. Now, the designation hasn't officially happened yet, but the timeline for doing so is by the end of this year, 2023. So to talk about what that might mean for growers, Almond Board of California Chief Scientific Officer Dr. Josette Lewis sat down with Industry Communications Senior Specialist Taylor Hillman for today's ABC Update. A lot of almond growers have stepped up and added pollinator forage, flower resources, and habitat to their farms and to their houses around their farms. We've seen a really great response in terms of the number of farmers who've registered as bee-friendly farms, who are putting in flowering cover crops, and who've worked with organizations like Monarch Joint Venture to specifically put in monarch habitat around their branches. And so for those growers, we want to make sure that they are protected if the monarch is listed as an endangered species. So if they accidentally harm the caterpillars or the butterflies themselves, that they are not breaking the law because they've done such a good job of adding that in. So that's one implication is if you accidentally harm a monarch butterfly, that will be against the law once they become listed. The other is as an industry, our crop protection products, which all have to be registered by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, the Environmental Protection Agency was also mandated by law to increase their review of the potential negative impacts of crop protection products like pesticides on endangered species. So we know that if the monarch is listed, some of the products we use, when they come up for re-registration, or any new products that are developed, 
and need to be registered, those will have extra scrutiny for the potential impact and likely could involve more restrictions on use of those products. So two main concerns there. Protection, because if they get listed, that is technically a crime if you accidentally harm them. And then also the potential impact that we see more regulation on products. Let's talk about what we're doing kind of preemptively here, which I think is great. ABC is working with the Almond Alliance, right? That's right. Yeah, we've been working with the Almond Alliance and some other agricultural interests in California, together with some conservation groups that have been valuable partners of the industry to negotiate a conservation agreement with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service that would then protect growers who have habitat and protect them from accidentally harming any of those monarch butterflies or larvae. The way those agreements work, we have to show that there's a net benefit to the pollinators. Growers have done good things in terms of adding flowers and uh, habitat for monarch butterflies. And then in exchange for doing those good things in this agreement, you're then protected if you accidentally harm one. And as part of those negotiations, we were also discussing what we can do to demonstrate uh, that we are also putting in the right kind of protections and the way that we use crop protection products, trying to demonstrate that we can use those safely and still have a net benefit to monarch butterflies. Research that we have funded with a native bee expert at UC Davis, and that was published last year, showed that when farmers add floral strips, either like wildflower, strips of wildflowers be part of a hedgerow or just wildflowers outside the orchard, but not necessarily really far from the orchard, that that added food for native bees helps protect those bees from the impacts of pesticide exposure. So there is a net benefit to those native bees by adding those flowers to the landscape. And that is the kind of standard that is used by both the California Department of Fish and Wildlife, who are considering listing some native bees here in California, as well as the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service that is considering listing the monarch butterflies. So that's some good evidence, and it's peer-reviewed and science-based, and really shows that the kinds of activities we have seen many growers in our industry do by adding this habitat, that it has a net benefit, and that's the standard used to uh, make these kinds of decisions around how we manage our farms and protect growers who've added that habitat. Let's throw in one last thing here, and that's keep using the habitat. The cover crop, it, it can be a positive thing for growers depending on their area. If you're doing it, we don't wanna keep people away from this. There are several programs out there. Now's the time of year to apply for incentives to do that cover cropping. This is something that we have seen an increase in popularity and, and proven by research. It's a good thing. Right. Absolutely. Um, a lot of growers have been uh, looking at cover crop and adding that into the orchard management. I've heard this year in particular, a lot of growers talk about how the water didn't stay standing in their orchards back in the early spring when we had so much rain that water infiltrated and drained much more quickly in orchards that have cover crops. So there's a lot of agronomic benefit from that practice in addition to benefits to pollinators and things like bee-friendly farming and adding more permanent habitat outside the orchard is another area where a number of our handlers in the industry have seen a market value Buyers want to know that they have a supply chain of almonds 
that allows biodiversity on the farm and allows farms to be part of healthy ecosystems. So some handlers have really leaned in with their growers and are encouraging those kinds of practices. And that's added certain value to both some growers and to um, handlers. Well, if you're interested in learning more about what resources are available for growers related to cover crops or monarch habitat or any of the topics discussed in today's episode, head over to the Grower Tools section of the almonds.com website, or you can also reach out directly to the field outreach team at fieldoutreach at almondboard.com. We'll leave some helpful links in the show notes for today's episode as well. We here at the Almond Journey podcast believe everyone in the almond industry has a story of their own of how they're making things work on their farms or in their jobs. Hearing the voices of industry leaders, people like Josette Lewis and like Tanya Gemperly-Gonsalves may have sparked a connection or an idea that you can use in your own journey. And that's why we want to feature these stories of innovation, resilience, and community here on the podcast. I hope you'll come along for the ride by subscribing to the show on your podcast platform of choice. And please pass it along to someone else in the industry so we can all share in this almond journey together. Mm-hmm.